This message is from the Axis Church, a redeemed community of missionaries living for the fame of the real Jesus. For more information about Jesus or the Axis Vision in Nashville, go to theaxischurch.org. It's a different world that we live in today, and it's changed rapidly over the last few decades. Christianity has moved. Christians have moved from the center of society in America to the margins of society, from majority to minority. We've moved from settlers to sojourners, from maintenance to mission. We've moved from privilege, where our values are assumed in our culture, to plurality, where it's one amongst many in our culture. We've moved from an institution to a movement. And so some want to be Christian and cool, so to speak, with very little, if any, theological backbone, a a spine of jello theologically and in practice. No pursuit of holiness. They change so much of the Bible in order to fit in with culture. And the result is that they lose their identity and their purpose and their mission. Loss of clarity for the sake of trying to fit in. But then others want to play it old school. And they want to remove themselves from culture with no missional involvement to speak of. They change little to nothing, and they certainly don't fit in. They're, they're not relevant whatsoever. It's a circle the wagons mentality where everyone who isn't just like us are ignored and unwelcomed. But I hope that through our time in First Peter over these next 10 to 11 weeks that, that we'll find another way, another way of engaging culture in regards to how to live as Christian missionaries today in our changing culture. And so I hope that through our time we can answer the age-old question for us today of how should we and how can we live the Christian life as God's missionaries for his glory in the world today in a culture that's becoming more hostile to Christians and their doctrine. Will we do whatever is necessary, sacrificing key things that we hold dear in order to be accepted by culture? Or will we isolate ourselves into our bubbles where we feel like we're the majority, where we feel like we are in control? Or will we live as strangers? Will we live as aliens, marginalized in a world that no longer prefers Christianity or its values? Will we seek to live missionaries, missionary lifestyles today for the glory of God? So what does this have to do with 1 Peter? It's got everything to do with 1 Peter. In, uh, in his book, Everyday Church, pastor and author Steve Timmis, he lives in Europe, right? He's from Europe. The New Testament is a collection of missionary documents, he writes, written to missionary situations. It was written by Christians living on the margins of their culture. Peter was writing to Christians who found themselves strangers and exiles in the first century Roman Empire. They were on the margins facing slander, abuse, much as we are. So who's Peter and who's he writing to? Peter was a fisherman, right? He was was someone who had a brother named Andrew, a father named Zebedee. His dad was a fisherman, his brother was a fisherman, he was a fisherman, but then there was one moment where a man named Jesus, a rabbi, came to the water's edge where he was fishing and called him to himself. So he's a disciple. 
He's been called by Jesus to come to himself. And he saw Jesus preach. He saw him heal, feed thousands, cast out demons, even walk on water. Peter was loud, often presumptuous. At moments, he was prideful and arrogant. Yet he was also a coward. He was a failure. Peter was a, a failure in the New Testament, time and time again in the Gospels. Most popular disaster that he experienced is when he denied Jesus three times. After Jesus gave him the warning saying that he would, he denied Jesus three times the night of Christ's arrest and scourging. But Jesus wasn't finished with Peter. He pursued Peter and restored Peter after his resurrection. And that's when he became an apostle, someone who is sent out, sent by Jesus. And he became a chief leader in the early church. He even pastored the church in Jerusalem. I mean, think of those words. He was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He died somewhere around 30 years after the death of Jesus Christ. And it's believed that, that Peter and Paul, who's also a New Testament writer and apostle, were founders of the church in Rome. According to the early writers, Peter died about the same time that Paul died during the Emperor Nero's brutal persecution of Christians, which happened within two years of Peter writing this very letter where he, he presses the early Christians to suffer well. I mean, think of how prophetic that was to the early church facing Nero. All agree that, that Peter was crucified, and the early church theologian Origen wrote that he refused to be crucified as his master. And so Peter, at his request, was crucified upside down because he could not hang on a cross in the same way that his Savior did. All that to say, 1 Peter is written by a fisherman. He's written by a disciple. He's written by uh, an apostle, a faithful pastor, and a future martyr. He wrote it from Rome during the, the reign of Nero, written to Christians in Asia Minor, which is what we know today as northern Turkey. He wrote this letter primarily to Gentile Christians and churches in the five provinces that we're going to read about here in a moment of the Roman Empire. He probably never visited these five areas, but he wrote this letter to these early Christians and to these early churches out of his love and pastoral concern for these first-generation Christians. He's aware of their circumstances. He wanted to encourage them in light of their present sufferings. He wanted to encourage them to persevere. He wanted to encourage them to remain faithful and fight the drift in their faith in Christ. He's encouraging them to resist the devil and stand firm in their faith in the life of rejection and ridicule and trials and exclusion, possible persecution and suffering and belittlement. Karen Jobes, in her commentary on 1 Peter, wrote this. The Christians of Asia Minor were facing troubling times. Because of their faith in Christ, they were being persecuted through social ostracism. Slander and malicious talk undermined their relationships with associates and families, threatened their honor in the community, and possibly jeopardized their livelihood. So this was around the 60s, still very pre-Christian in its culture. They were marginalized. Christians had much suspicion that, that clouded them. There was pressure for those Christians to abandon the faith. I mean, after all, it was just a, a, a few years old. It's not like you could point to a long history of Christianity. Abandon this. Compromise. 
Don't, don't be so distinct and different and odd. Just fit in with culture. The West is becoming much more like this. It's post-Christian, though pre-gospel. And people who are present in our culture seem to be influenced in some way by Christian values and ethics, but they, to the large extent, abandon it, especially when it gets difficult. We no longer enjoy the privileged status, which is for our good in the church in America, I believe. But it's not popular to be a Christian. There's lots of pressure for us to compromise. And so the people in these early churches were experiencing difficulties that are probably not too far removed from where you live in your Christian journey today with your family, in your culture, and in your context. They lived in a culture that didn't understand their beliefs and their devotion to Jesus Christ. And because of this lack of understanding on part of the pagan culture, the Christians were being persecuted and caused to suffer because of their faith. There was no empire-wide, government-mandated persecution of Christians. That was still a couple years away, but it was still difficult to live the Christian life. All we know for sure is that the culture around these early Christians did not accept them because of their faith in Jesus and their pursuit of Jesus. And that played out in a number of ways. It caused distress in the church. It caused anxiety in Christians. And what I fear most and what I think is at the heart of Peter here is I fear compromise in Christians in light of the, the way that it's tensing up around the church today, specifically in our context. We're we're experiencing something very, very similar to the context that Peter's speaking to. We, much like these early Christians, need encouragement in how to live the Christian life today. Like, what's it look like today in culture? How do we rightly engage? How do we live out a Christian life in light of the culture becoming less tolerant with who we are and what we believe? Peter is one who is very familiar with trials and, and failing to overcome the trials. As I mentioned, he's a failure Yet he still wants these early Christians to remember that their hope in overcoming and even being restored when they fail is in the God of all grace who called them in Christ. And I believe wholeheartedly that you and I need this same encouragement today. Peter, he not only wants them to stand firm in their faith in the midst of these trials and suffering, but he also wants them to know how to live as Christian exiles or, or resident aliens, people who live here but actually belong to another land, another kingdom, and another king. If you know Jesus and if you love Jesus, you belong to a different kingdom, and Jesus is your king. You don't really belong here. Christian, the world as it exists today is not your true home. And we're not supposed to feel too comfortable here. Even Jesus said in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation. You will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. We're not supposed to be comfortable here. So then how, how do we live in a place we don't really belong to that holds different convictions and philosophies and at times even push hard against what we believe to be true about Jesus and reality and eternity? How do we live as the church, God's people on mission, wherever we go and wherever we are? How should we and how can we live the Christian life as God's missionaries for his glory in this world today in a culture that's growing less tolerant towards Christianity and biblical doctrine? 
Well, over the next 11 weeks, we're going to consider how we can be citizens of the kingdom of God and citizens of Middle Tennessee at the same time. We're going to consider how we can live as the church, God's people, on mission with God's presence and with God's power. And a key that we must remember is who we are and what God has done for us. We must remember the gospel. We must preach the gospel to ourselves minute by minute, to one another minute by minute, because we will drift, we will drift quickly into disobedience. We will drift quickly into trying to just keep things cool and sacrifice who we are in Christ. So let's go to the text. Look in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1. This is how Peter starts. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Now here already, if we're not careful, we can lose something extremely significant that the audience, I mean, we just heard this and we're like, okay, when's he going to get to the point, right? Like, when's Peter going to get there? Man, when this letter was read to those churches, they would have like, sat up. They would have been like, whoa, whoa, let's, let's, let's go get a couple more people in here to hear this. This is, this is incredible. This is, this is radical, what we're about to experience in this letter. You see, there's no other office in the New Testament where the prepositional phrase of Jesus Christ is listed. There's no evangelist of Jesus Christ. There's no elder of Jesus Christ. There's no deacon of Jesus Christ. And so when, when Peter classifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, he's likening his title to deity. Much like in the Old Testament, you would have prophets of, anybody? Prophets of God. Yeah. You would be liking your, your title to deity because you would be speaking on behalf of God. Like it's not just your opinion. Peter's saying, look, this isn't just my opinion. I'm not just throwing out some thoughts. This isn't just a, hey, hope you're doing well type of email. He's sitting down and he's saying, this is much more than just me. This is in spite of me. This is, as you heard God in the Old Testament, hear him through this. And I hope that, that we would respond as they responded and think, wow, this is God speaking to us. So he's unpacking this letter God is using Peter to speak to the church. Let's look at it a similar way this morning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Whoa. And he, he says he's writing to the elect exiles. Not just the exiles, but the elect exiles of the dispersion. You see, there was this pressure placed on the early Christians, and it caused them to scatter. Scattering to Pontus and Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. To these churches, to these elect exiles, these Christians. And then he unpacks their election in three ways. Their origin, their experience, and their goal of the election. The origin of their election. You are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. The experience of their election. In or better, through the sanctification of the Spirit. And then the goal of their election for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. <laughs> Y'all, in, in his greeting, he's unpacked the doctrine of election and the Trinity. Before he even says, hey, he's unpacked the Trinity and election. This is where we're going to be spending our time today. 
Because we have here in the, in the very first two verses very significant statements that Peter, being a good pastor to the people of God, he starts out with in order to bring them hope in their impending trials and sufferings. As they're experiencing the hostility and ridicule, he's starting right here as the platform that he's going to be writing the entire letter on. He wastes no words. He has carefully selected these precise words, words from God, perfect words. He starts out by reminding them who they are because of what God has done. See, one of the reasons why we so easily give in to temptation and trial is because we look to someone or something else to define us and justify us. As if we're not enough, we have to have that. And one of, the, one of the key reasons many of us slip into hopelessness and despair in temptation is because we forget who we are in light of what God has done for us. And we slowly drift here, especially when we stop preaching this same gospel that Peter's unpacking to ourselves daily. It's like we fear losing people's approval or losing our personal sense of significance that we've been looking for outside of God and his work for us. And so we, we end up doing whatever it takes to impress others and play this significance game where I want to find my value somewhere else. Remember back where Peter denied three Jesus, Jesus three times? Peter denied Jesus three times the evening of Jesus' arrest and his scourging. Well, Jesus died... He beat death in his resurrection. And then later in John 21, Jesus appears to seven disciples. And Peter's in that group of seven. And he goes to Peter and he asks Peter a question three times. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Jesus knew that whatever we love most has the greatest power and influence over us. If Peter loved Jesus, he would do whatever he said. He would worship him as king, and, and therefore Jesus would have the greatest sway over Peter's life. The reason why Peter or you or I will ever love Jesus more than any other is because we've come to understand his great love for us first. That is why Peter starts with the reminder of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ to make these people, and to us who believe here as well, his own. And as a way of encouraging and bringing courage to these early Christians who've experienced opposition and are facing even more, he explains that they are elect exiles. He's saying this is part of their identity. This is who you are. You are elect exiles. Don't get too comfortable, but also know that God's eye is on you. So how does Peter bring encouragement to the early Christians, to our grandparents of the faith? How does he encourage them to remain faithful to Jesus and live out the Christian life today in a culture that's ever-changing in how it views Christianity? He unpacks doctrine. <laughs> Yawn, right? Like this is, okay, come on, give me a break. Peter did not want to base his encouragement on feelings that are fleeting and subjective. He wanted to base them on something that they can know our knowings, our doctrine that, that can and should impact and influence and determine our feelings. He's going to doctrine. He's, he's pastoring them well by taking them to the doctrines of the gospel. Doctrine serves us as a, an objective anchor in the subjective times of anxiety and fear and frustration. It speaks to something that we can know regardless of what we face. Here's what I know in a moment of fear frustration, and anxiety. He starts with, you are chosen. 
You're elect. You're, you're predestined. Christians, God chose us. We are chosen. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, this word is used 22 times in the New Testament to refer to those who were chosen to be part of God's people. The idea conveyed here in this word is that God's people are known, that they're wanted, that they're chosen, and that they're purchased by God. Adoption is at the heart of what this means. And I wish that we would enjoy this wonderful truth. I mean, Christian, it's our identity Though we are sinners, we are wanted by God and chosen by him. And all who have come to faith in Jesus have been chosen by God. We didn't choose God. God chose us. And he didn't choose us based upon anything that we've done or haven't done. And some don't believe in the doctrine of election, of God choosing some to believe in Jesus. However, the Bible writers just assume it. And each time they give it, each time they talk about it, each time they, they give it, it assumes that it's bringing courage and encouragement to the readers, not hostility, not angst. It was meant to just bring, breathe life into them. You are elect exiles. They would think, oh, what a grace. When a family adopts a child, people typically aren't angry that they did not adopt the entire village. When a fireman goes into a burning home and rescues five of seven people, he's not a villain. Yet when God steps into justice and creates room for mercy and grace for some of the wicked and undeserving, evil, hate-filled, God-hating people, we consider him a villain and a jerk. My prayer is that God will be patient with us as we try to grasp these truths of our salvation and that we wouldn't in anger just push away and think of him as a prude. Romans 9 puts it this way, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Consider 1 Thessalonians 1. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he's chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Notice that they still went and took the gospel to them. This should not produce laziness in how we are missionaries today. Acts 13, 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, they believed. Christians, you were not chosen because you were receptive to the gospel. You were receptive to the gospel because you were chosen. You were granted faith by God through grace, not merit, not what you did, not of works, so that you wouldn't brag about it and boast about it, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And Jesus states for us his choosing, how his choosing and the Father's choosing leads to our response. So hang with me. 
John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will then raise him up on the last day. Matthew eleven twenty-seven. 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Most significantly for me, John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Jesus tells us, you did not choose me, but I have chosen you. You are chosen and you are elect, but you're chosen in your exiling. Your exiling is elected. It's, it's under the knowledge of God. Your suffering, your isolation, your persecution is still part of a greater plan. It hasn't caught God off guard. It's not an accident. It is chosen just as much as your salvation. So this word exiles, man, when, they, when this early church, when they heard the word exiles, they would have instantly thought back to what we know as the Old Testament. They would think exiling. Well, God's people, God's chosen people. Um, Egypt, slavery, being exiled, being oppressed, Babylon, like being, being exiled in Babylon. But they would also remember not just this, they would also remember God's faithfulness to keep his promises even in their exiling. His awareness and his nearness and his deliverance, even as they were scattered and experiencing ridicule and oppression. They would remember Jeremiah 29, The prophet Jeremiah, where he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent. (laughs) Babylon sent them, but God says, No, I was over Babylon. I have sent you into exiling. I have sent my people into exile. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. (laughs) Live on mission. Live for my glory. Plant gardens. Eat their produce. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. If there's not room for God to use suffering in our life to bring about a greater good, then we're not understanding much of Scripture. Because we see right here how he's calling in their exiling to live helpful lives for the welfare of the city. And that they would pray for the city. He says, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. So where you are in exile, under my sovereignty, pray for the people who are exiling you. Pray for those who are oppressing you. Live lives as good as you possibly can there for my glory, because after all, I've sent you there for this reason. Their exiling wasn't outside of the plan of God. They were elect, and their exiling was elected, so to speak. And here, some want to define foreknowledge as merely foreseeing, but that's not what it says. But what that basically means is that God foresaw what would, who would respond to Jesus in faith, and then he reacts to that and chooses them. It's kind of like where God is looking for the ones who would somehow creatively, on their own, in their sin, from their sin, stop hating God and begin loving God. And then God, much like a third stringer, would jump up off the bench and finally get some playing time because we picked him to play. That's not what the Bible tells us. It does tell us that we were dead and God stopped our funeral. Dead people don't do anything except rot. 
That's where we are outside of God's gracious, merciful activity. When you start dead, you quickly begin to appreciate God's activity on our behalf. Without him bringing us to life first, we would never have the life and faith to pursue him, ever. He grants us that as a gift. Ephesians chapter 2, it is a gift. Faith is a gift to us. It's a grace of God. You see, this word know or knowledge here doesn't simply mean to know about. If that's what it meant, then perhaps those of the different opinion would be correct here. But the word for know here in this context means to set one's affection on and to take as one's own. Again, it's at the heart of adoption. So God formed you and said, I love you. I love you and I want you in my family. God formed the future. He didn't react to future events that he wasn't sure how they would turn out until we first took action. In eternity past, God determined what eternity future would look like. I mean, consider Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things, even exiling, work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The complexity of our salvation in the sovereign hand of God and his providential plan is magnificent. I mean, God knows everything about everything. That's that's part of what it means to be God. He knows everything about everyone everywhere. He knew everything about you and still wanted you anyway. He knew all of your sin and your need is what drew himself to you. And Peter wants these believers in Jesus to understand that the gospel shapes all of our life, not just this theological part that we keep back over here, but that should bleed into everything that we understand about our identity, practically speaking. When you're suffering and you want practical help, Peter gives you doctrine. He gives you something deeper to base your identity on that can't be shaken regardless of how good things are or how bad things are. You can know this and have peace here. Christian, we are chosen by God, living as aliens in this world, not because of anything that we have done or anything that we will do, but because of God's work of grace in the gospel towards us. And those who are followers of Christ are because of God's work in our hearts. God is always the pursuer. He comes after us. He takes the initiative. We don't convince God to take us. He convinces us to come to him. We don't desire God and overcome his resistance to us. We don't break down his unwillingness towards us. We don't win him over by our good works. He wins us over by his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6 says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. It doesn't say once we called out to him. He chose us literally before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. It was in love that he predestined us for adoption. There you see it actually written out for us as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, not according to him consulting us, 
and getting our permission first, but according to his purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. See, foreknowledge doesn't just mean that God knew the facts about your life, but rather it speaks to him knowing you. And he set his love on you before time began. It was his sovereign plan. Election tells me that I'm not good, I'm not deserving, and I've done nothing to merit or earn salvation, but he loves me in spite of who I am because of who he is. And that brings comfort. But if this concerns you, I want you to think about it this way. If it bothers you, and I hope that it does, that some might not come to faith in Jesus, let that, pers- let that push you to tell others about Jesus. And if you're wondering, well, is this me? Is, am, am I called? Am I chosen? Do you want him to? Then come to him. You're being called to him today. Respond to his call and ask for faith to believe him. If this makes you concerned about your own salvation, be encouraged. It probably wouldn't matter to you if the Spirit wasn't alive and working in your heart. If it leads you to the point where you say, then why me, O Lord? I mean, why me and not someone else? Then walk in humble gratitude for what he has done. I admire that humility. And if you're still not satisfied with all this, stay tuned. We're going to walk through a lot of this as Peter builds his letter on these doctrines. And look at the totality of how our salvation works here in these first two verses. We are foreknown by God the Father. We're set apart, sanctified by God the Holy Spirit. And we're sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, God the Son. And blood typifies death in the Bible. And the wages of sin is death. And Jesus dies in our place for our sin. It was all laid upon him. He, lived, he died. We live. He's cast out. We are welcomed in. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus takes the initiative. He takes everything I deserve and he gives me everything I don't deserve. Love, grace, mercy, patience, forgiveness. And all this happens for obedience to Jesus Christ. Now this is the ongoing process of sanctification, of of becoming more and more like Jesus. Not that you're immediately perfect here in this life, but that God is patient and merciful. Like 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that it's changing us from one degree of glory to another. So in relation to God, we are chosen, Peter tells us, foreknown, set apart, sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. But in relation to the world, we are exiles, we're strangers, we're aliens. This world is not our home. And if you try to make it your home, you're going to grow increasingly frustrated. By being a Christian, you set yourself up against culture in many ways. And we need God's help in knowing how to engage culture practically. Because we don't do sex or money or work or kids or really anything truly the same way with the same hope and motive as the world does. We're different. We should be different. So how would this encourage the people that Peter is addressing? If God chose them... God will keep them. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. They can face any trial. They can face any suffering. They can suffer any exiling because they know that nothing can separate them. That if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, not only are we chosen on purpose, but we're chosen for a purpose. God sends us. We're chosen for a purpose. 
See, the gospel shapes more than just who we are. It also shapes how we live. Sanctified in the spirit for obedience. This is a beautiful word, sanctification, where it's, it's becoming more like Jesus, but it's being cleaned. It's being set apart for a purpose. But notice that this is a work of the Spirit of God in our lives. We don't clean ourselves. We don't set ourselves apart for a purpose. But what is that purpose? It's for obedience to Jesus Christ. We are to be obedient to Jesus. But notice in your Bible that it doesn't say that we were set apart because of our obedience. If you put because there, then you miss the glory of the gospel. We're not set apart because of our obedience. We are set apart for obedience. And this is what encourages me most right here about this portion of the text. Our obedience is still laced with sin. The best that I can offer is still there's sinful motive. There's not, not doing it 100% correctly as, as much as I want to, to give selflessly. There's still something that I think I'm earning. Like I'm still, I'm still pursuing what it looks like to try to do all things without any sin at all. But the good news here is that our obedience is continually being sprinkled with the blood of Jesus. Do you get that? Blood covering our sin in our obedience so that it is acceptable and worship before God. It's just like the sprinkling of blood on the altar and on the people in Exodus 24, which they would have thought when they, when they heard sprinkling of blood, they would have thought back to the sacrificial system. They would have thought back to the priest interceding for them where their failed attempts are forgiven where there's grace in the midst of not doing it correctly as they were making sacrifices to atone for their sin. So the point here, what I think the first audience would have heard that first Peter was, that Peter was writing to is that God is faithful to us even in our sinful obedience. This brings me such encouragement. When I try to do it right and I still don't do it right, Jesus is sprinkling his blood over that attempt in order for it to be good enough. That is radical encouragement. So the gospel not only gives us a new understanding of self, it shapes how we live working from the inside out so that we're cleaned and set apart for a purpose. And he helps even in our failed attempts at living out that purpose good enough in the eyes of God by him graciously sprinkling it with his blood. And I love how Peter ends his letter. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He extends this all throughout his letter. He uses two very significant terms here, grace and peace. Now, the first audience would have called it, we don't really catch it. He says grace, and they would have thought Jesus' activity on our behalf, God's pursuit of us in Christ, right? Peace. Not just harmony, right? Not just ease. They would have heard Old Testament shalom. They would have heard all of God's promises to God's people in the Old Testament is ours. Peter, speaking on behalf of God, right? He's an apostle of Jesus Christ, writing to these early Christians. Grace, yes, thank you. And peace, that have been like, whoa. He's attaching the old covenant with the new covenant. He's attaching the promises that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
in their exiling, pursuing them, pulling them to himself. Those same promises are ours. And the same promises that Christ gave us are ours. It would have been radical encouragement that we so easily just breeze through. But you know, when, when Israel is in exile, God was completely in control and accomplishing his purposes through it. They were being refined as he was being glorified. He still had purposes for them, and his plans were still for their good. God is sovereignly in control of where these people were in those five provinces. It didn't happen outside of his will. And if he chose them and keeps them in his hand, then then what they're experiencing or even will experience is set apart uh, as part of his plan for their good and his glory. Spelling it out for us today, how this should encourage us. God has you where he has you on purpose, where you live, where you work, who you know, what you are going through. All of this is for a purpose. They were elect exiles, not just chosen, but chosen to be where they were as well. You are where you are on purpose. And some of you hearing this message, you're hearing this message because God is calling you to be his child. He loves you and he wants you to know his love. And God's promise of peace and grace is yours today. Call out to God for faith to believe. For others who are hearing this message, God wants to encourage you. You are where you are in life, not because of a cosmic mistake. It's God's purpose. And he's working in you to bring about a greater good. He's calling many to himself through you and what it is that you're going through as you continue to make much of him in your exiling, in your suffering. You might say, I don't know about for me. I'm, I'm not qualified. I'm a mess. I fail too much. Just like Peter. You and I, we don't make ourselves holy. It's the spirit that takes us from where we were before Jesus and makes us holy and useful for God's purposes right now. God provides us with great hope that it's not up to us. We have the Spirit who can empower us. However, if we depend upon ourselves, and we fail, and we mess up, and we certainly will, we have one who has given his life so that we might be forgiven. God's gracious activity in our lives should not lead us to care less and take advantage of grace but to care more and to love more, to be more grateful and to be even more willing to give our lives for the one who gave his life for us, whose blood we are sprinkled with so that we might be cleansed. We can, we can be willing to face suffering and persecution and ridicule today because we know that he suffered for us while we were still his enemies committing cosmic treason against the God of the universe. He still loved us and died for us even then. We deserve death, and through his death, we receive life. And not just life, but life as God's son, with God's spirit and God's power to obey in God's grace and forgiveness when we don't obey perfectly. And what I find interesting is that Jesus experienced all of this for us. He knew what it was like to be an elect exile. He was chosen by God to be exiled for a purpose and for a people. He left heaven and he came to earth, leaving a place where he was worshipped to come to a place where he would be marginalized. He lived a life of purpose and obedience for us to make us his people. He died. I mean, that is the ultimate act of marginalization. 
He died a public, shameful death on a cross so that you and I could be granted forgiveness and love by his Father. And if he was marginalized, we should expect to be marginalized too. I believe that 1 Peter is going to make us men and women, boys and girls, who are able to walk with courage and hope in a world that desperately needs it. How can, we obe- how can we be obedient? How can we live lives as obedient missionaries, as Christians today? By hearing and believing and knowing my identity in Christ and living in my calling that he's called me to. By pursuing holiness and culture in life, at work, in my home. Peter is calling these churches looking back at what Christ has accomplished for them and looking forward to what Christ has promised them. He's calling them to persevere under suffering, knowing that they are God's chosen people and that Christ will return to finish what he has started. And this hope is to produce joy in his people, even as they suffer. Because the fact is that we will suffer. We will suffer for our faith, some more than others. We will suffer because we too are elect exiles of the dispersion. Because we are not at home here in this world the way that it is. We don't conform to the belief system and the values of this world. We are in the world, but not of the world. Just as Jesus was misunderstood and mistreated, so too will we. But this is not a cause for despair. For we too have a home, and this life is short, and Jesus will return to make all things new. And so we can see our suffering as a good tool, a good tool of God to drive us closer to him. So be encouraged with the gospel this morning. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together in us and over us to bring us new life, where our past is forgiven and our present is protected and our future is assured. Though believers are strangers and aliens and we're scattered in this world, we are a part of the pilgrim people of God. We're journeying to our Father's home, and we long for the day when Jesus the Son will return for his own. May we be obedient in pursuing him, longing for his arrival. And for those who are unbelievers this morning, I ask you to call out to God today, asking him for faith to believe so that you can get in on what God's doing. And as we end our our sermon this morning, before we move into communion, I want to do something a little bit different for us that we normally do. I want to give us a couple minutes where Kirk is just going to be playing something on the keys. And I would prefer if you can help it not to get up during this time and, and, and leave the room, but just that you would take some time here this morning and that you would just sit back and try to process what you just heard and that you wouldn't, that you wouldn't just go to the next thing or even go on to communion, but where you would seek out someone to pray for you put their arm around you, pray with you through something. Maybe you just turn around where you are, even in your seat. It's amazing how much centralized prayer can be when we kneel before the Lord, literally. Perhaps you want to come forward to the stage and and kneel here. Journal. Pray. Respond. Think through this.
What is it that God's telling you about himself, about yourself, about your situation? What is it that he's called you to? If you've been saved for a purpose, what is that purpose? Pray, ask him for these things. And I'll close our time in prayer. Use this time. Use this as a gift from us to you. Use this to think and pray and process. And then I'll pray for us and Pastor Jacob can lead us into communion. But take this opportunity now.